Let's pray together. Father, as we worship you through the hearing of your word and the listening to your word and the responding to your word, I pray, Father, that you would be exalted and magnified. I pray that Christ would be glorified. And I pray that we would be humbled and grateful at the magnitude of your love for us, the good news that you've given to us through Christ Jesus in the gospel. Father, that we would, we would worship you in response, that you could love us like this, go to such ends to save us, that you would reach down to us, and Father, as we glory in the salvation that you've given us and you who've provided it to us, Father, may we grow in our role of ambassadors for the King, ambassadors for, for our Father, ambassadors for you. And, and Lord, with confidence in you, with trust in you, with a deeper and better, more enduring sense of reliance on you, Father, make us bolder than we have been. Make us more obedient than we have been. And, Father, use us. Use us to make you known. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the middle of the book of Acts, or really in the, sort of the second half of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, and we're in Paul's second missionary journey. As I was prepping this message, it, it dawned on me there was a time in which the United States was the number one missionary sending nation in the world. I mean, that's what we did. God was using the church here in the States to get the gospel out to the rest of the world, but that, that's no longer true. We're no longer the number one missionary sending agency. And in fact, I think it won't be long until you can rightly argue that we're going to be one of the targeted nations in the world to get missionaries to. Um, our country is increasingly becoming, and you've heard this phrase before, post-Christian. And when I, when I say post-Christian, uh, what I mean is, you know, those old Judeo-Christian values no longer predominate. Those things that were once, once assumed, whether people were particularly Christian or even religious or not, that we agreed upon, but those things are gone. And in fact, what we're seeing replace that is not some neutrality towards Christianity and the gospel, but antagonism. And we're seeing it coming down from the highest levels. We are decidedly post-Christian. And I say that not to discourage you, just to point out the obvious. But as we, as we reckon that things aren't like they used to be, and perhaps they never were quite what we thought they were in terms of a true Christian nation and culture, we need to recognize at the same time that while we've moved farther and farther away from those truths and those foundational things that we used to all agree upon, we are more ripe than ever for the true gospel to go out. And while we are post-Christian in a sense, we're God's glory is not known. God's word is not taught largely as it once was, and God's will is not obeyed. The gospel still is powerful, and it's able to penetrate even the hardest of places, even the most resistant of peoples, even those places that seem farthest away from him. And so as we look at this missionary journey, Paul's second missionary journey, think about the power of God to penetrate, to accomplish his purposes. God is sovereign in his gospel. He's made us promises here. So some of what I'm going to do today is decidedly theological. I want to reground us. I want to deepen our roots in what we must believe, what we must be confident in. But theology never stands alone. As J.I. Packer rightly said, theology leads to doxology. That is a right understanding of God, which theology is the study of God himself, ought to lead to worship. That's doxology. It's hard to worship a God you don't really know. I pointed this out to somebody, we were having a conversation after a service a couple of weeks ago, and I said, my great fear and why I continue to preach the gospel even to the vast majority of you who are already converted is this, I fear by and large, there are going to be a lot of people who are attending American churches, they're going to have a false sense of hope and security, and one day when they die and they stand before the one true God, it's going to be a God that no one ever told them about. It's not going to be the God of the Bible, it's not, I mean, it is going to be the God of the Bible, but not the God they were taught. Their, in, their understanding, their impression of God is going to be vastly different than the God of righteousness and holiness and judgment they stand before. And so we need to acquaint ourselves with who is this God. And also I want you to be encouraged today because 
I get that where you work and where you live and where you go to school can be difficult places to practice your faith and to speak it. But I want to renew your confidence in so doing and what you hear in this passage today. So open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 18. We're going to cover a lot of verses, so think fast, write quickly. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, and what you miss, I hope it'll encourage you to dig in deep and revisit and perhaps re-listen or search these scriptures for yourself and use this just as a guide, a map, to follow them out. Let's start with the advance of the gospel now into a brand new place called Corinth. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, <clears throat> Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, let's just pause there for a moment. Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Corinth is a different sort of city than Athens. Paul was not in Athens very long. We know this, just a few weeks he was there, and then he departed Athens to one of the most important um, business, commerce, um, Roman cities in the world. Uh, in Athens, Paul had debated with the intellectual, philosophical influencers of his day, and, and frankly, there was very little fruit there. Um, Paul would later write to the Corinthians about his time in Athens when he said in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and following, God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I and mean, that's a shot across the bow to the philosophical wisdom of Athens that elevated man and de-escalated, devalued God. So he's saying, listen, the gospel is not for those wise in their own eyes, but it is for those who will put their faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. Foolishness to many. So by the leading of the Holy Spirit, Paul shakes the dust off his feet, as it were, from Athens and moves on to Corinth. When he gets to Corinth, he follows the, the plan, the modus operandi that we've seen again and again. He goes to where the Jews are. He was always an apostle to them first, and he goes to the synagogues. And in the synagogues, he does this. He opens up the scriptures to them, and he shows them that Jesus is the one. All of these prophets that you have heard, all of these texts that you have read, all these things that you have believed, they all point to Christ. He is the answer to all of those. He is the fulfillment of all of those. He's the one. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. But he in Corinth is different than Athens. If Athens was a, a philosophical, intellectual center of the world, Corinth was a, a cultural, lifestyle center of the world. Um, Corinth was known for its wickedness and debauchery. The, the patron goddess of Corinth was Aphrodite, the so-called goddess of love, and not love in a biblical sense, but sexual love. This was, this was their primary deity, Aphrodite. In, in fact, for 500 years, the term to Corinthianize meant to be sexually immoral, to be sexually wicked. So when someone began to go off into all sorts of sexual deviancies, they would say, you've become Corinthianized. It was a term sort of used like we in our day do in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. And in fact, later when Paul is ministering to the church in Corinth and he's writing them letters about their sexual lifestyles and their, and their deviancies, he would say, some of you are engaged in sexual promiscuity, deviancy that's even rejected by the Corinthians themselves. That's how bad it is. And so this is what Corinth was, was known for. This was not going to be an easy mission field. This is going to be a tough place because you're going to have a culture here that's going to reject the gospel for, for its judgment on them. They're going to reject the message because in their minds it restricts them or restrains them. And certainly it's counter to what they do and how they live. If they're going to receive it, it's going to have to transform them completely. This is the toughness of the mission field. So after this, Paul leaves Athens. He goes to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Persecution against the Jews had pushed some of these out. These are believing Jews. These are converted. These are followers of Christ. And he goes to see them because he's one of the same trade. So he stays with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And one of the things that we see notable about Paul in his early ministries, he was never dependent upon the mission field itself. He had support from the churches that sent him and sponsored him. But in these places, he worked. I, I think Paul was very careful to never have his motives misconstrued. I, I, wanted, I think as he penetrated a, a harsh world of, of immorality and darkness and unbelief, he wanted them to make sure that 
why he was there was solely as a servant of God, not as a profiteer. And also he didn't want to be a burden to these brand new Christians. And so Paul's working and serving, and, and he's using his occupational skills as a tent maker. Verse 4, he reasoned the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that, Jesus, that Christ was Jesus. The Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. You know, it's a really a fascinating story. I won't spend too much time on the, on the narrative here, the details of the narrative. But it is a fascinating story. Um, a couple of years ago, when I had the opportunity to, to walk through the old city streets of Corinth, which is still a pretty well-preserved ancient Roman city, you know, it's fascinating to walk to that place where the synagogue was, would have been, and presumably most historians believe and, and archaeologists believe that this house that he's speaking of not only was next door to the synagogue, but literally shared a wall with it, right on the other side of the wall. I mean, imagine this. He's giving the news that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and it's received on this, it's rejected on this side of the wall, and it's received on this side of the wall. And the, and the ministry goes forward, and people are getting saved, and it's an amazing thing. We know where, whereas Acts Chapter 18 gives us a bit of the, the biography of Paul's missionary journey. If you want the autobiography of it, you read what Paul wrote himself to the Corinthians. Listen to what he said about his own ministry in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. What do you think he's referencing there? He's referencing the transition from Athens to Corinth. I didn't come to you as a philosopher. I didn't come to you as a, an Athenian, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do you see the contrast? I don't want to... I don't want to debate this with you. I don't want to establish this on a shaky ground of human wisdom or understanding. I, I'm not a philosopher here. I want you to understand this simple message. His method was, was direct and simple. I, I decided that when I get to Corinth, I'm not going to do what I did in Athens. But I'm going to zero in on the critical element. And that's the message of the cross. This will be a cross-centered message. Everything will be centered in that. For at the cross, there you see two things intersecting perfectly. And it's the only time and place where you really will see this. How has God loved us? When we talk about the love of God for us, what sort of love are we talking about? Not this generic love. Not just this uh, emotional love. God has loved us with incredible action, decisive action. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. By this we know his love. In our sinfulness, in our rebellion, in our denial of God, rejection of God, unbelief of God, God still demonstrated his love for us in Christ at the cross. That's his love. But at the cross, we also see the justice of God, the holiness of God, the judgment of God for sin must be dealt with decisively. What sort of God are we talking about here? A God that condones all of our sins, all of our lusts, all of our pursuit of pleasures? No. This is a God who's holy and will hold us to an account. And sins must be punished. And he punishes them there at the cross. So he centers his message on the cross. Now when you see that in 1 Corinthians, don't assume that when he says, I said nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, that Paul would have left out the resurrection. We know implicit in all of his teachings is including the resurrection. That's all one thing. Jesus, who is he? The son of God who lived perfectly for us, who died sacrificially for us who was buried and was raised physically for us, who's coming in. He said, I'm going to lock into that because it's all about the cross. And what you believe about everything else is irrelevant. But what you believe about what God has done on the cross is critical. So the message is cross-centered. But listen to what he said about himself as a messenger. And don't miss this part. Weakness. 
fear, much trembling. Do you ever get nervous when you're trying to share what you believe about Jesus? When you're trying to initiate a gospel conversation? When when you're trying to lay out something that, that you know the other person might have a hard time swallowing? That you know flies in the face of what they do and how they live? That, that their beliefs are written all over their lifestyle. And you know this is going to hit it square between the eyes. You ever have anxiety with that? I mean, that's what Paul's talking about. Paul walked into Corinth alone. It, it wasn't until he meets these two individuals that are believers that will serve as instrumental supporters in his ministry. And a little bit later, two of his faithful co-workers will come alongside of him. But he walks in there alone. And he's nervous and he's anxious because... He's got to confront the sins of the culture before he can share the good news of the gospel. Remember what we talked about in Athens? We, we have to talk about the, the weight of our sin before we see the, the worth of God. He's stepping into the most debaucherous, depraved culture of its day. And he can't just simply step in and say, Jesus loves you and, and how you are and what you're doing and you can have a better life and a happier future and health and prosperity if you'll just pray this prayer. He's got a call to repentance. He's got to talk about the cross. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Not some just generic display of love, but to pay the penalty for the sins of man. Jesus was treated on the cross as of the worst of sinners for our sake. And to preach a cross-centered gospel is confrontational. And so he's trembling at this. He's anxious about this. Man, that's just straight humanity here. That's just keeping it real. I think it's important for us to look at people like Paul in the scriptures and find them to be heroic. But don't make out Paul to be a superhero. The strength of Paul was the work of God in him and his faithfulness and his obedience. So Paul walks in trembling, but God strengthens him. It's it's all part of God taking care of Paul and advancing his own message that he sends those fellow believers alongside of him. They're going to be co-workers, making tents and making disciples. And then he's also going to send Silas and Timothy, those faithful co-workers. Timothy, who will be mentoring. Silas, who will be working alongside of him and encouraging him. But look at the response in the synagogue. So he's taken the scriptures, and he's taking those Old Testament texts. And I can just imagine Paul working it through from the very beginning. Let's talk about creation. Let's talk about the right of God to be God. To establish a world by his own design. Let's talk about our rejection of God and the fall of man in the garden. Let's talk about the curse that came on this world and all those who live in it because of sin. Let's talk about the promise of a redeemer, a redeeming seed. Let's talk about that woman and the child that she'll give birth to that will crush the head of this serpent, our enemy. Let's talk about the covenant God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and fulfilled through Joseph and the deliverance of Moses in the Exodus. Let's talk about the law of God and its holiness. Let's talk about the demands of God and worship and sacrifice through through tabernacle and temple. Let's talk about the prophets who foretold a Messiah coming. He told them it's Jesus, but what was their response to that? At the point of Jesus, what did they do? They opposed him, and they resorted to abuse. The word there is abuse. We're not given the details. Um, Luke didn't focus on Paul's sufferings. And we don't know exactly what sort of abuses took place at this moment. We know later in Paul's own writings that he details some of those abuses, about how often he was whipped, how often he was beaten, the times where he was nearly stoned to death. He describes them. Presumably, this would have been one of those times where the temple authorities would have taken him and beaten him. And Paul suffered for the gospel here. They resorted to abuse to drive him out. You know, ultimately, if you're really pressed, and this is true for all of us at some point, if we really wrestle with Now hear me out, because maybe there's some of you that are still kind of on that dividing line. If you will really wrestle with the demand of the gospel, because the gospel is not just a pronouncement of good news, it is also a command. When Jesus came about preaching the gospel, he said, repent, believe the good news, follow me. If you will really wrestle with what the gospel says, that apart from God, there is no hope, there is only judgment, there is only despair, and you need not suffer that, If you really wrestle with the demands of the gospel, only one of two possibilities are there. You're either going to embrace it or you're going to reject it. You can't be ambivalent towards it. If you're ambivalent towards it, if you're unconcerned about it, you haven't wrestled with the weight of it yet. You haven't wrestled with the weight of the claim. It's either going to make you angry and say, no way, that's foolishness. 
I reject that. There's no way that's true. There's no way I'm going to accept that. I reject that and I reject anyone who speaks it. See, that's the sort of culture we're in now. They're not ambivalent towards this anymore. They're rejecting it. They're angry about it and its claims and demands. Or you'll say, oh God, save me, a sinner. And so their response was abuse and rejection. Look at Paul's response. This is critical. He shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And just a quick footnote, when Paul says, from now on, I'll go to the Gentiles, he was talking about in Corinth. He wasn't talking about every place he goes, because we know he'll continue that pattern of going to the synagogues first. But here in Corinth, no more. He won't preach in the synagogue there anymore. That's over. That part's done. And he does two things. He, he, he first uh, gives a symbolic statement. Now, again, this is where it's helpful to know just a little bit of Hebrew history, a little bit of Bible history. Because what he does when he shakes out his garment here is reminiscent of Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 13. You can write that reference down and look it up, and you can see the context of it later. But in Nehemiah chapter 5, God is warning the Israelites to stop oppressing the poor. Dear to the heart of God are the treatment of the poor and the downcast, the oppressed, the widows, the orphans. And in Acts, I mean, in Nehemiah 5.13, Scripture says, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. May God shake them out. May God dispense with them. May God be done with them. And the idea of shaking out his garment is basically saying to them, God has shaken you out. It's a statement of judgment. And they knew what it meant. I'm sure this really ticked them off if they weren't ticked off already. He shakes out his garment against them as a symbolic sign that God has shaken you out you've rejected him and the second part is something verbal he says your blood be on your own heads i'm innocent from now on i'll go to the gentiles again this has roots in the old testament this is reminiscent of ezekiel chapter 33 verses 1 through 5 ezekiel describes the responsibility of a watchman on the wall the watchman on the wall sees the enemy coming when he sees the enemy coming he issues a clear call a call to response if the watchman knowing that the enemy's coming doesn't issue a warning, doesn't make a clear call, he's responsible for what happens. But if the people who hear the clear call reject it, don't respond to the watchman's warning, they're responsible for whatever happens to them. And he's saying, just like the watchman on the wall, Paul's saying, I did my duty. I came in and I stood here and I told you what was coming. I told you what was real. I told you what was true. And you rejected it. Your blood's on your own heads. When people reject the gospel, whose responsibility is that? Both the Old and New Testament make it clear that is their own. I warned you and you refused. They rejected. So what does Paul do? He moves next door. And again, for time's sake, I won't go into all the ironies of that. But it's just an amazing thought that here in this place, in that synagogue, they didn't want to hear. So I'll go next door somewhere someone does. And by the grace of God, look who gets saved, Crispus, the synagogue ruler. Now, again, I don't want to assume things in in the absence of any evidence. And and I don't want to build a message around or even a simple point in a message around something that's not there. But I will throw this out nonetheless. Wouldn't it be amazing if the same person that ordered his beating led the charge against him, God has now humbled and brought to salvation by his amazing grace. And Crispus the ruler of the synagogue gets saved. And not just Christmas, but his family, his household. And then it goes on to say, and many, many who heard believed. Many who heard believed. As he shook out from his garment, those who rejected, as he said, you're responsible now because you know, you know, and you've refused it. As he takes the message elsewhere, they believe. You know, surely that lets us know at least this that God can save anyone, anywhere. If Crispus, do you you see the message he's sending? Listen, if Crispus was once leading the charge against Paul in the gospel, and now he's the first convert we see listed in in Corinth, who is outside the reach of God? You know, again, I'm not saying that to you just for some sort of theoretical, oh yeah, I see that. But for some practical reminder in this culture that we live in, who's outside of it? And God can do whatever he chooses to do through the work of his gospel, through the work of his servants. If we'll be faithful in our part, God is forever faithful to his. And who's outside of his reach? Nobody. 
But look at the promise that God gives him now. This, by the way, is, is one of six visions that Paul receives in the book of Acts. And each of these visions come at critical points in his ministry, whether it's um, God giving him a mission to go to Macedonia, where the gospel is going to go forth there, God giving him a vision to get out of Jerusalem because of what's going to happen there, God telling him to go to Rome, or God telling him you'll appear before Caesar. At critical points and junctures, God renews him. God recharges him. God resends him. And so in one of these visions, this is what happens. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and not be silent. Okay, let me just pause there for a moment. Let's think about this just in human terms, okay? What Paul had just been through is devastating. I, I was discussing this passage with one of our staff this week, and I was thinking, as I was talking about this, how little does it take to stop us? How little does it take to make us become very covert with our faith? I'll just keep that to myself. I'll go underground with it. I mean, how, how, really, how much does it take to shut us down? A few people opposing us on our Facebook page, a, a few ugly tweets, a, an offhanded comment at work or by a friend, a, a label that we don't like, you know, you're narrow-minded, you, you're bigoted, you're whatever, you're intolerant. I mean, let's be honest here. It doesn't take very much to stop most of us. We'll just shut it down, and we'll just we'll go undercover with it. And I look at Paul's life, and, and he would not be shut down. As I was outlining some messages in some weeks to come, and I'll try to answer this in one of those by his own testimony, I just wrote this big question across my notes. What made Paul so committed? But he refused to be shut down. So here, imagine, in the bleeding, broken body of Paul, God appears and says, listen, don't be afraid. Why, why would he tell Paul, don't be afraid? Because he's afraid. I, I wouldn't tell you after you just ate at Golden Corral and we're wobbling out to the car, hey man, don't be hungry. <laughs> well, he's afraid. What's going to happen if I keep doing this? How much more of this can I take? Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. Why would we tell him to go on speaking and don't be silent? Because how do you stop persecution? You shut up. You don't talk anymore. How do you stop being a target? You get quiet. You hide. You go undercover. So Paul, those things that in your natural flesh, your, your humanness, you might be tempted to do. I'll just quit. I'll be quiet. I can't do this anymore. Don't. Go on. And listen to what he said. Listen to this threefold promise. For I am with you. No one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. And when Paul encountered God in that vision, and he heard those things, and obviously he believed them, he took them to heart, because he stayed. He stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. Without that vision, maybe we could assume that Paul would have left Corinth like he left Athens. But he stays a year and a half, and he stays a year and a half based on what God told him in that vision. That's what fueled it. This is the missionary fuel that God gives us. Listen to the components of this promise. I promise my presence to you. That's obvious. I am with you, Paul. You, you came into the city alone, but you were never alone. When you walked into Ath I mean, when you walked into Corinth, I walked into Corinth. I'm with you, and I'm not going to forsake you. You're not going to stand in front of anyone alone. You're not going to have any conversation by yourself. You're never going to be the only one engaged in this great spiritual equation. Never. I'm with you. Number two, I promise my protection. Now, you and I should not take this as a blanket statement of protection, for else there would be no martyrs. There would be none that sacrifice themselves ultimately for the sake of the gospel. But there's a bigger principle here. He says to Paul specifically, no one will attack you to harm you. But the broader principle is this. I'm protecting you. I would like to think that the right interpretation of that passage would be something like this. Paul, I have made you immortal until I say otherwise. You're immortal till I say otherwise. Your days, your years, your life is in my hands. You trust yourself to me. You're in my hands. And nothing's going to happen to you that I don't allow. And until I say so, 
I've got you. He's saying, I've, I'm going to protect you. And then he says this, I have many in this city who are my people. He's promising Paul his providence. His providence. I'm promising that I will exercise my sovereignty, my right as king of all and creator of all to do what I will and my power to carry out my will. I will enact that in the daily activities of your life. It's my providence. When he says to him, Paul, keep going. I have many people in the city. He's not saying to Paul, hey, man, there are a lot of people here that have got your back. I mean, look at Priscilla and Aquila. and you know, These people got your back. They're going to help you out. They're going to protect you. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying something much more profound about his own sovereignty and the salvation that he's going to bring about to those who hear the gospel. Keep in mind some of the things we've heard already. We saw in Acts 13, 48, this statement. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What is he saying to Paul here? All those that I have appointed to eternal life in Corinth, they haven't yet believed. I've got many people in this city. So keep speaking the gospel and call them out so that they will believe. They're my people. As he speaks of his sovereign purposes in verse 10, what I will do, I will call them out. I have many people yet in the city. He reminds them of the balance of your responsibility. And we see these two in Scripture. In Scripture, we never see these truths attempted to be harmonized. They're just presented. They're just true. There's no contradiction. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to speak. You're going to not quit talking. You're going to keep giving the gospel. And I'm going to keep being me. I'm going to call out my people. It's clear in this passage, I think, that much like what Paul wrote to the Romans, there are people who belong to the Lord in that city who aren't yet saved, and they're not going to be saved if Paul doesn't preach the gospel to them. And that's exactly what he wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how then will they call on him of whom they've not believed? And how are they believe in him? of whom they've never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless someone sends them? He says, this is the way that God works. This is what God does. Remember Paul's own definition of his purpose in ministry, Titus chapter 1, verse 1. What did Paul say was his ministry? Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. He's telling him, in this city, unknown to you, Paul, are my people that I'm going to call out, that I'm going to save, that are going to believe in me. So don't quit now. Man, that's the ultimate, that's the, that's the rocket fuel of missions and evangelism. That's a rocket fuel of personal gospel conversations. That, that, that's the ultimate motivation, not just that God is with you. That's, that's fantastic. Jesus had already promised that in the Great Commission. Lo, I'm with you always. And not just that I'm going to protect you because some people take it hard for the sake of the gospel, but to know that through my words, through my faithful handling of the scriptures, God is going to call out people to himself, chosen from the foundations of the earth, and that lights the whole thing on fire. And that's what sends them out. And we know that the Bible teaches us what the Lord will do. Consider things that we know the Lord will do. Jesus made it clear in the Gospel of John, all through chapter 10, there's your homework, read John chapter 10, and see what Jesus said about the promises of God in salvation that magnifies God and glorifies Christ and humbles us. The Lord will call out his own sheep, Jesus said. John chapter 10, verse 3. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. He leads them out. When he's brought them all out, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. In verse 16 of John chapter 10, Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I have sheep in places like Corinth and, and Athens and Ephesus in Antioch and in Rome. I have sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there'll be one flock and one shepherd. And at the end of that chapter, he says this in verse 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why do they follow me? Because they're my sheep, and I'm calling them out. And Jesus says, this is exactly what I've done. So Jesus tells the Father, those that you have given me will be mine. 
and I'll receive them, and I'll keep them, and I'll never let anyone snatch them from me. He'll call out his own sheep. We've seen that the Lord will open the hearts of those he calls out, Acts 16, 14. Remember, that's what we did to Lydia. When Paul was preaching, the Lord opened her heart to pay, what was atten- to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I'm going to call them out. I'm going to open their hearts. Acts 15, verse 14. I'm going to take those as my own. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. I'm calling out these Gentiles to me. And those that he takes for his name, he gives eternal life. He gives eternal life to those who he's appointed. Acts 13, 48. As many as were appointed to eternal life believe, I'm calling them out. What's the point of this for me and you? He's telling Paul this. Paul, I have a mission here. This is my mission. You're my ambassador. You're on a royal mission for the king of the universe. I have a mission here, and it will not fail. It will not fail. And when, when this mission is complete, then the Lord will come. This mission will not fail. And God, who has in his sovereignty assured us of the ends that it will not fail, is also sovereign in the means. That's why he tells them, therefore, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. You're familiar with the character Don Quixote? Charging the windmills? Foolishly? Fruitlessly? Paul is not charging windmills in Athens and Corinth. Paul is on a fail-safe, fail-proof mission from God himself that will succeed. So when you think about salvation, think of these three responsibilities in the conversion of any person. Three distinct responsibilities, three distinct lanes. You first have the responsibility of God. And these responsibilities are God's alone. It's, It's God who chooses, enables. It's God who atones for. It's God who calls. It's God who regenerates. It's God who does those things. That's his lane. But you and I have a responsibility. And it's clear. It's as simple and succinct as what he told Paul. Keep on speaking. Don't stop talking. Ours is to tell. Ours is to tell. Ours is to proclaim. The good news is a proclamation. It's not a system. It's not, it's not a methodology. It's a truth. It's an objective, propositional truth that we proclaim. This is the good news of God in Christ. Ours is to tell. And what is the responsibility of those who will be saved? Theirs is to believe. Theirs is to hear it and accept it and put their faith in it to believe. God does his part. We have to do our part. And people must do their part. And God who's sovereign in the results of those things, as he says, is also sovereign in how those things take place. Those who come to me, Jesus says, I'll not cast out, but I'll receive them. Or as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's their part. Our part should go on speaking. How will they hear unless someone tells them? The Great Commission, go, go in all the world. And God's part is the rest. Don't assume responsibilities for those that aren't yours. And here's the truth, and I can tell you this is a personal testimony of 25 plus years of ministry. I know a lot more Christians who would like to debate soteriology Sovereignty of God, responsibility of man, Calvinism, Arminianism. By far, I know a lot more debaters than I know people who tell the gospel. Paul didn't take time to debate soteriology. He gave the gospel. He trusted God to be God. And he called people to do what they had to do. Because the blood of your sins is on your hands. It's on your heads apart from Christ. So run in your own lane. Trust God to, to run in his. And that, as Jonathan Edwards would say... When we do that, as you've heard me mention already, that exalts God. That glorifies Christ, and that humbles us. And salvation is for the humble. So we trust God in his work. Now, I want to share with you just an object lesson as I wrap this up. I want to land this plane on on a couple of thoughts here for a moment. I told you that God had promised him, his presence, I'll be with you, his protection, they're not going to harm you, and his providence. I've got many people in this city, Paul, so don't quit give you an example of how God carries that out. It's a, it's a beautiful object lesson, which may seem just like, a, like sort of an aside, a footnote to what just happens. Look at verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, Acacia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul is about to open his mouth, 
Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. You know, a couple of thoughts. One, obviously Crispus is no longer qualified to be the ruler of the synagogue. Crispus now is leading a house church, or at least an actual participant in it. So there's a new leader of the synagogue. His name is Sosthenes. So kind of trying to connect some dots here, presumably Sosthenes has led the Jews in the synagogue to say, let's take up action to stop Paul now. Let's do something about this. So Sosthenes, Sosthenes, who's presumably the leader of the pack, the band leader, organizes them now in a legal way. So they go to the Roman authority of the region. And what's their challenge against him? The charge against Paul is that his teachings were new and not Jewish, and therefore they're contrary to the law. Now, I won't go into the detail of the history of this, but it's interesting to me for a couple of reasons. First one is this. They recognize that what Paul was saying was not what they've always believed. They, they recognize the newness of it. They recognize what we would call New Testament here, the testament of God's grace offered to us in Christ. They recognize the uniqueness of it. That this is not just an offshoot, a new branch of Judaism. Okay, So that's to their credit. They recognize God is saying something new to us here in Christ. But their challenge was unacceptable to Gallio. You see, in, in those ancient Roman times, though there was much anti-Semitism, um, anti-Judaism in the Roman culture, they still were accepted as a legal religion, not an endorsed one, but a legal religion. They let them practice. They allowed them to establish synagogues. They allowed them to, to practice their worship virtually unhindered. Now, some places the crowds would raise, rise up against them, the local communities or populace would, and push them out to other places, but it, as a general rule, they had some level of, of protection of the practice of their religion there uh, with some limitations. And so what Gallio is saying is, no, you guys are arguing about names. You're, you're arguing about words and, and your own law. He says, no, this is, this is an internal thing. Jesus, your Messiah, your laws, the fulfillment of your prophets, all those things. This is something you have to decide. He rules that it's a religious matter. And so it doesn't require government intervention. If it had been a, a new religion in his eyes, then it wouldn't have the sanction of the Romans. It wouldn't give, he wouldn't give the tacit approval of it to be practiced, but he said, no, it's just a religious matter. But the result here is a precedent that was set. So now from this point forward, sort of in legal precedent by the Romans, Paul's able to speak the gospel freely there and in other Roman provinces. The precedent's been set. He's a rabbi, and he's going to synagogues, and he's teaching them a version of that. Now, why is that important to us? The result is this. God protected Paul, just like he said he would. That's called providence. So when God says, Paul, I'm going to protect you, it's not necessarily this invisible barrier that he puts around him, so no whip touches the skin or no stick breaks his back. It's not something that keeps someone from spitting on him or cursing him or throwing blows with him. It's something much bigger. It's God who's able to work how he wants to work, when he wants to work, through whomever he wants to work. A godless pagan Roman ruler named Gallio or a Roman synagogue, I mean a, a Jewish synagogue, and accomplishes purpose. So now, God's, now he's protected. And Paul stays there a year and a half. And he won't have to worry about the intervention of the government. And he won't have to worry about a mass uprising against him again because it's been put down. Now here's the epilogue of this, which leads us to the second most important city of Paul's missionary journey coming up. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. Remember them? Co-workers in the gospel. At Sincrece, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus. He left them there, but he himself went to the synagogue, reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a little longer, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And then he set sail for Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Paul's work was always more than just starting churches. It's a good picture of modern missionary, missionary strategy. It's more than just 
going there and preaching the gospel, getting the good news out. Paul was doing more than just starting churches. He was strengthening them. And Paul's ministry stayed in those places until they were established and functioning and strong. And Paul also didn't work autonomously. He was not just a rogue, independent missionary doing his thing. Paul's return to Antioch is where he was tethered, is where he was held accountable, not just where he was financially sponsored, but where he was spiritually overseen. And that's his cooperation with the church. He's under the authority of a local congregation. I mean, even the Apostle Paul recognized the role of the local church in the work of God. He's not independent. And his next stop, again, will be the second most or one of the two most important stops in his missionary journey, Ephesus. And we'll talk about what takes place at Ephesus next. I want to ask you if you'd pray with me. As we pray together this morning, I want to speak to anybody in this room just for a moment who doesn't yet know Christ. You know, teetering, waffling, wavering, considering, deciding, figuring, whatever term you want to use. The full weight of the gospel requires a response. I mean, to understand the awesomeness of God, the vastness of God, the, the exalted God. To think this is the one that spun everything into existence. This is the one who rules over all. This is the one who has the right of all authority over everyone and everything. We're not talking about a, a, just a religion, a branch of a religion, a, a denomination, a belief system. Uh, think bigger, man. Think about, this is God we're talking about here. How will you, when you die, stand before the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, to whom nothing is hidden and all is revealed, a God who is self-revealing, is holy, without sin, without darkness, and just, which means he cannot look on sin as if it does not exist, not condoning nor accepting, but God who is just in his dealings. And then, God, who has been merciful to us and offered a, a means of justice to us by, by grace, a freedom given to us in Christ that all that you deserve, I have already accomplished for you in Christ and offer that to you, and you have re you've rejected it? On what basis will you stand then, God? God, I didn't think you were real. God, I think I've been pretty good. God, I think I deserve to be in heaven. What are you going to say? Because none of that's going to hold. You know this. When you feel the weight of standing in front of God, I mean, I'm telling you, there are only two rational responses. In the flesh, a rational response might be, I reject all that because I hate all of its implications. I hate all the implications of that. You're telling me there's a God who's going to judge me for what I've done and said and thought. A, a God who would condemn me to everlasting punishment. I reject that. I refuse that. Then you can do that. But the blood of your sins and judgment will be on you because I'm telling you, God is just and he will judge mankind. Or you can say, wow, have mercy to me, God, a sinner. Have mercy on me. And in humility, open your, your heart, open your life to the gift he's trying to give you. I want to give you my grace. I'm going to give you myself. I want to pay for your sins through the sacrifice of my son. I want to forgive you. I want to take you from my enemy to my family. I want to make you my son. I want to make you my daughter. I want to make you mine forever. Turn from that sin and unbelief unbelief the greatest of sins and believe this good news I'm telling you now come and follow me, be mine call on him today to save you Christian, what about you? man, I'm so convicted in the study of Paul and God has been challenging me over these last couple weeks, this kind of stuff can't just be theoretical, Acts for us cannot simply be a history lesson the gospel goes forth in human pain and suffering but in God glorifying power but that's just how it is, but it's worth it it's worth it. And though the contexts are different, the circumstances certainly are, there has to be some sense of, to every Christian in this room, this message. 
Don't be afraid. Don't be quiet. I'm with you. I've got you. I'm doing something you can't see, so don't quit. And remembering that no one's outside of the scope of God's grace. Man, let's keep on praying. Let's keep on praying for those that are far from him. Let's keep praying that God will use us. And let's keep going. Let's keep going to hard places. Let's keep having hard, hard conversations. Let's be faithful. Let's run in our lane. Let's trust God to do his. And let's do what the scriptures compel us to do as his ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. Therefore, we implore you, be reconciled to God. Keep calling people to be reconciled to God. That's why Paul preached the cross. The cross is the means to reconciliation with God. Father, as we pray today, I pray you move in our hearts to respond. I pray you move our hearts towards belief and faith and trust. You would do for us, do for anyone in this room what you did for Lydia, who doesn't know you yet. Father, those that you open the hearts of you too, I pray they would believe and by faith receive you today. And you would do exactly what you promised in your word. You would make them your own. You'd give them your name. They'd become part of your family. And I pray, Father, that they would have eternal life just as you determined to give. Father, they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And Father, stir us up. Stir us up to love and, and good deeds. Lord, may we do that for one another. You're with us. You're protecting us. You're enabling us and allowing us to deal with whatever. You, you're sovereign over us. You're the filter through which all things pass that affect us. Father, you're doing something here. If we just don't quit, we don't quit. How will they hear unless someone tells them? And Father, you're, you're sending us and telling us to be your voice. So Father, I pray we would do that. So Father, move us to obedience today as we pray. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for our salvation. For it's in the name of our Savior we pray. Amen.